Well, what would you say to a person, uh, some of you here are managers or business leaders, what would you say to a person who said that he was a great employee for a company, and yet he consistently stole from the company, he showed up consistently late, and he was written up several times? Would that fit your definition of what would make a good employee? No, it would not. Would you say that it was judgmental to fire such a person? No, you would not. In fact, you would say probably it would be negligent for the employer not to fire such a person, right? And I would have to agree with you. What would you say to somebody who said that they were your best friend and you knew that they lied to you, you knew that they cut you down behind their back, and when you asked them for help on several occasions, they always had an excuse not to help you. Would that fit your definition of what a good friend is? No, it would not. What would you say to a man who said that he is a good husband, and you know he's having an affair, and he's lied to his wife about it. In fact, it's not the first time that he's had an affair. Would you characterize such a man as a good husband? No. Would it be judgmental of the wife if she told him, quit the affair, or that's it? No. In fact, you'd probably say, if she had wisdom, she would hold the line, right? In every one of these cases, most of us don't have a problem with understanding that there are boundaries to some relationships and rendering a verdict that some employees need to be fired, that we need to move on from some friends, uh, some husbands and wives need to repent. We seem to have clarity about all these social relationships, but when it comes to God, somehow things get really cloudy, and the clarity suddenly leaves us. Christians often distort God's grace and love as if God has no standards, and I can go along and do whatever I want, live any way I want, and me and God, man, we are hunky-dory. And many Christians think that. In fact, some feel very uncomfortable talking about anything like the holiness of God or fearing God or the, the discipline of God. These things are uncomfortable topics. Some people don't like it. They've created an idol of God, a God unfamiliar to the scriptures. It's more of a, of a Disney God with, you know, pretty rainbows. And that's all that God is to them. A few years back, I did a funeral for a family member that was a Christian. And the funeral was held in the church of another family member. And that church was known for its acceptance of gay marriage and all the lifestyles that go along with it. Well, at the funeral, I simply gave the gospel at the request of the deceased, by the way. I didn't mention any particular sin, but I talked about how we all are born in sin and we are in need of the forgiveness of God. And after the funeral, there were a lot of upset 
people upset at me. It's bad when pastors get the thumbs down at a funeral, let me tell you, all right? <laughs> that, is, that is not a good sign. And it, it, it occurs to me that the gospel is offensive because we have to acknowledge that there is a God who judges sin, and he has paved a way, which I believe is the only way, for us to reconcile to God through Jesus Christ. The gospel is offensive to people, especially if they don't want to face that they have sin, right? They, they want to create a God out of thin air, and, and they can do whatever they want, and there are just no consequences whatsoever. But that is not the God of the Bible. Now, while it is true that our standing as Christians doesn't change when we're truly a Christian, what can change is our fellowship, our intimacy, our closeness, and by extension, our rewards and our enjoyment and our joy in the Christian life. We could say it this way. Some Christians walk with God and some Christians don't. I don't find that very hard to understand. Some Christians value the word of God and obedience and some don't. Do we really think that God does not care which category we're in? Do we really think that in those cases that I've drawn out, those people are going to have the exact same experience with God? I don't. John 15 draws a sharp contrast to what I've just laid out. It shows that any Christian who thinks that God is nothing but love and they refuse to deal with their disobedience, they're going to have a wake-up call. John 15 is an invitation for us to draw near to God and to enjoy all of those benefits. When we abide, our hearts are open, there's, there, there's communication, there's love and obedience. When we abide, our will is compliant and obedience is welcomed. You say, well, how do I know this? Well, one sure way that we can be in a state of distance from God, that we can recognize this, I think is, is our refusal to take responsibility for what's going on in our own lives. A refusal to acknowledge that we're responsible for the state of our own heart. Is it not true that many of us, and I would say all of us at one time or another, have blamed God or others when we feel a lack of connection or we don't feel loved, right? I won't have you raise your hand, but I know all of us, being human, having flesh, all of us have done it, right? And usually in such cases, there's hurt or pain that is unhealed, and what we need is the unconditional embrace of a holy God. But what happens often is that we keep others and God at arm's length, never really initiating, often blaming every institution and every person that's available. And when we fail to abide in love and obedience, responsibility is always on others and not us. Now for me, that is a sign of whether I'm abiding or not, whether I'm taking responsibility. And whether I am 
taking responsibility for my obedience. In other words, we might blame God for our financial situation and ignore biblical wisdom on finances. You ever find that? I just can't believe that God doesn't help me out here. Well, dude, you've got $40,000 in credit card bill. Why don't you start taking responsibility for that? Quit spending more than you get, and maybe God's going to start moving in your life. I mean, there are things that you can do to help yourself, right? Right? Or maybe we blame God that we are experiencing great loneliness And yet we insist on shacking up with our boyfriend or girlfriend or just having one-night stands. We have these relationships outside of his will, and we don't understand why we're still lonely. Or maybe we think that everyone else has failed our children when they're misbehaving, and yet we continue to fail to apply godly discipline. Now, it's not that every financial struggle, every feeling of loneliness, every time a kid misbehaves is our fault, but what I'm saying is when it is our fault and we refuse to take responsibility, that's a problem. There's got to be a better way of living the Christian life than blaming other people, right? There's got to be a better way of living the Christian life than being constantly disappointed in others or even disappointed in God. There's got to be a better way than feeling like others have always let us down and this nagging feeling that we just don't measure up. Common experiences for us. And yet I think John 15 Hits the nail on the head and has the answer. It's about abiding. That's the theme of this chapter. It's an active dependence upon Christ, even when our needs go unmet or circumstances go awry, including relationships, finances, job, whatever, that we can find the peace of Christ in the midst of those things. We choose to love him and persevere in faithfulness no matter what happens. And such believers, according to John 15, they produce much fruit. And by extension, that means they are richly rewarded. And those who don't abide, what happens? They lose that intimate fellowship with God. They are simply not as close to him as what they could be, and their spiritual strength weakens. Listen, we cannot mistreat our friends and expect that we're going to have strong bonds. We cannot continually escalate, withdraw, or belittle our spouse and expect that we're going to have a healthy marriage and then blame the other person. Any fair-minded individual understands that there are laws to relationships, right? And likewise, we cannot walk in disobedience, discredit God's word, and think we're close to God and everything is cool with me and God. It's all good. And we think it isn't going to matter because, you know, hey, uh, God's all love. 
God's nothing but grace. Galatians 6, 7 gives us fair warning when it says, do not be deceived. It's another way of saying, don't lie to yourself about this. God is not mocked. It's another way of saying, you're not going to make a fool of God. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. As the Father has loved me, verse 9, John 15, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Notice the flow in this passage. The Father loves Christ his Son, and the Son displays the same kind of love for us. And then we have an injunction, a commandment, to abide, rest in, enjoy, embrace, be powered by the love of Christ for us. Again, we are talking about closeness, fellowship, intimacy, a deep experiential love that not all Christians experience because not all abide in Christ. My wife will always be my, li- my wife, God willing, but I am not always intimate or close with her because sin will enter the picture. Arrogance, pride, words that shouldn't be spoken. So there's distance, but we need to you know, close the gap, confess that, restore the fellowship. It's the same with God. And by the way, there is one ironclad way that you can figure out if you are enjoying the love of Christ and truly walking in it. And why does this passage say that it is? It's that you walk in obedience. That's really not hard to figure out, is it? That's really not hard to figure out. That's why I have talked to so many people. And man, you know, I love God. You do? Well, then quit sleeping with your girlfriend. <laughs> okay? I mean, I, I love God. Really? You do? Well, then quit having this affair. And we think that we can just continue, that, that God and I are just, you know, we're like this, man. Well, if what they're saying is God still loves us, yes, I would agree with that. God loves us no matter what. That is true. But listen, the relationship is not the same when we're obedient versus disobedient. There's a, di- there's a distance that's created. There's a fellowship that is broken that has to be restored. Even though I'm still a Christian, I'm still a son or daughter, if my son or daughter came up to me, cussed me out, hit me, disrespected me, we're not going to be all that close in those moments, right? (laughs) There's going to have to be repair done to the relationship, right? Is that person still my son or daughter? Yes. Do I love them? Yes. But there's going to be distance that has to be repaired. That's what John 15 is talking about. You can't claim to be a good employee and steal. You can't claim to be a good spouse and cheat. You can't claim to be a good friend and lie all the time. And you can't be close to God and live in disobedience. 1 John 4, 17 through 20 makes a similar point. By this is love perfected with us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected by love. 
We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a what? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. All all John is writing there is, don't say you and God are like this when you hate your brother. You can't, that's not true. Because one who loves God walks in obedience with God, and that includes loving others. And so to abide in Jesus' love is to operate in the sphere of his love. His love is believed, it's experienced, it is embraced. And when we are convinced of the love of God, the most natural thing is we will want to please him. We will walk in obedience. The the obedient believer demonstrates his love for God. And the disobedient believer demonstrates that he disrespects God and his commands. And John makes the corollary of us loving and obeying. Why? Because God first loved us. Boy, it would change Christianity in America if that verse was understood. No more legalism. If we understood that God first loved us, it would get rid of all the judgment that goes on within churches if we understood that God first loved us. It would get rid of our insecurity and working so hard to manage our image if we understood that God first loves us. And we are given an injunction to love because God first loves us. Loves us. Because this is who God is, this is what we are supposed to be. And that's a theme that is consistent throughout Scripture. For instance, in Luke 6.36, it says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Because God is merciful and has shown you love, then you ought also to be merciful to others. Now, does that mean that we are always merciful? No. But what it means is there's no way we can be merciful unless we understand God's mercy being expressed to us, at least to express the kind of mercy that God has for us. First Peter 1.15 says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because God is holy, we are to also exhibit holiness in our lives. Does this mean all Christians act in a holy manner? Of course not. But it is necessary for us to have God's resource in our lives to be holy. In the same manner, there is no way for us to love unconditionally and obey God without the love of God that activates us, that is alive in us. And so, we could say it this way. When we focus on our own image or how others perceive us or view us, and all of us do. Let's not, you know, start pointing the finger. We all have done it. So really what we're talking about is, does, is this the, the, the predominant thought or force of our lives, being concerned about what others think and managing our image? When we're that way, we're obviously self-absorbed and not operating out of security and the significance that God gives us knowing that we are loved by him. But that's available for us 24-7. But at times we walk in our flesh and we're self-absorbed. We don't have to work on being self-absorbed. It just comes natural in our flesh, right? 
I don't have to work hard at being a jerk. It comes natural for me, okay? That's the way the flesh is because I live in this earth suit. I have to, I have to die to the flesh. So I try to focus on God's acceptance, God's love for me, and I cultivate this gratitude, and the Holy Spirit then begins to do beautiful work in each of our lives as we try to do that. What I think is happening here is that, is that Christ in John 15 is really calling for the ultimate authentic faith that, that works through the heart, that is motivated by love. And it's not that fake Christianity when you walk into church, people dress the part, say the part, you know, talk Christianese. It's none of that. It's authentic. It's the person who will tell you the truth and do it with great love. It's the people who energize you that you want to be around because they are motivated out of love. They don't have to fake it. It just oozes out of them. Because they have met with God, their hearts have been filled, and it is overflowing. That's what God is after for each of us. What happens is that Christians often suffer from not being able to adequately diagnose their own spiritual condition. They often think if others perceive us as Christianly, that means God's cool with them. That's why pastors get in trouble. It's, it, it is so easy to be arrogant and prideful to get up in front of people and talk about God, speak for God, have people come up and say, oh man, God really used you. And I'm not saying that's bad, but if you don't watch it, you don't daily check your pride and arrogance at the door, man, you know your head starts doing this. And, and then, you ever try to work with a guy like that? Right? Always has the right answer. Always has to have his way. Right? Bullies people. Okay? I mean, that is, uh, that's easy to do. And you don't have to be a pastor, by the way, to do that. All right? Don't sit here and pile on me now. All right? I want you to understand we can all get in that position, right? It's a vicious cycle. When you try to keep up an image and you live a lie, and you deny any kind of stuff that's going on in your life, right? In fact, to, to admit to any vulnerability or sin or anything, that's to kind of defeat your image. And your arrogance won't allow you to do that. That's not a good place to be in. And John clearly says that we cannot expect God to use and bless us when we're not truly motivated by love, abiding in love, which promotes the obedience. So when you're not operating in that agape love, you're not walking with God. And when you're walking in disobedience, you're not loving God. It's hard stuff. Now, see, we look at it, Often we read that and we think, okay, so God doesn't love me unless I'm obedient. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is you're not going to experience God's love at the deepest level, this intimacy, unless you're walking in obedience and pursuing God. That's what it's saying. Just like in any other human relationship. If you want depth, if you want intimacy, fellowship, 
closeness with God, then drink in the love of the Father, walk in obedience, and you're going to walk close to God. But we cannot expect that we're going to be close to God when we're walking in disobedience. That's when we are lying to ourselves. So practically, how do I know if I'm abiding? A few things I would throw out. Am I enjoying the love of God in my life, or am I consumed by what others think of me? Am I consumed by fear of the disapproval of others? Now, we all have insecurities. So I'm not saying if you have any insecurity, you're not loving God. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, is that predominant in your life? Am I living in fear of disappointing others? Or am I finding my security and significance in Christ? So that, here's the way at least I try to work with it. Is if I get in a situation where maybe I'm fearful, I get in a situation where I can sense I'm, you know, I'm insecure about going into a situation, I, I just immediately try to get my thoughts under control. I say, okay, God, I'm feeling this sense. I'm feeling this fear. I'm feeling insecure. I need you just to remind me that you love me just the way I am, that, uh, uh, that you love me unconditionally. Help me to find my significance in you. It's just in that moment, just go to the Lord and ask him. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit will begin to give you peace, even in the midst of that. Or here's another one. Am I living in disobedience, refusing to change about something that God has clearly shown me? Or, or, or is my heart quick to acknowledge sin? It's one thing to have an argument with your spouse. It's another thing to let that go on for weeks. That's why the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your, on your wrath, on your anger. In other words, get it settled quickly. It's another thing to have sin in your life but it's quite another to let that go for weeks without dealing with it. Then it becomes a bondage. And the longer you go, the harder it is to admit it. Am I enjoying relationships that are open and vulnerable? Or am I having a hard time maintaining close relationships over a long period of time? See, some people don't have any close friends, and they blame everybody else, and they don't realize how in their insecurity is getting in the way of people drawing near to them. What you would need at that point is to allow the love of God to flood your heart and say, God, you know what? You're going to take care of me. You love me even when I disappoint you. And I'm going to find my security and significance in the fact that I am a child of God. And I will be okay whether so-and-so likes me or not. So help me to love them. Even if they don't respond the way I think they should. And it gives you a whole different foundation. A whole way to, to operate in relationships that's different than just, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And that's the way we usually operate. Perhaps it's time we allow God to heal our hearts, to heal up the pain that is there, and to begin to love fully. Not because we deserve it, because none of us do, but because God delights in you. God daily gets out his wallet and sees your picture. Look at this one. I love this one right here. That's what he does. Of course, I can't say that anymore. It's actually God gets out his iPhone and looks. 
at the pictures. See, Jesus would do this. Read verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Can we accept the fact that there is a kind of joy that we manufacture that's with the the machinations of of human beings, and then there is a kind of joy that is God-given. Notice even what this says, that my joy may be in you. There's a temporary kind of happiness, and then there is a, a deep abiding joy that God wants us to have. And we are to experience the love of God and honor him in obedience because that is the pathway to this blessed joy. G.K. Chesterton called this joy the gigantic secret of the Christian. Malcolm Muggridge, the British reporter, first encountered Mother Teresa in Calcutta among her destitute and dying, and he could not explain what he called her luminous quality that he saw in that little and plain woman. And this turned out to be far more than a TV assignment for Muggridge, for that was a catalyst for him to later actually come to Christ. You know how strange it sounds to our society that is, that is so infatuated with just happiness and, and fulfilling every, every passion. The idea of saying no to a passion is so weird to people, right? And many folks just see happiness as equated to doing whatever I want to do. But when we talk about joy in sacrifice, joy in obedience, joy in discipleship, and faithfulness, and loving unconditionally whether we get back or not. I mean, people look at you like, man, you got two heads. That is so weird. How can you have joy in that? Listen, joy is not an automatic continuing result of salvation. It is contingent on abiding in the love of God and ongoing obedience. Notice verse 11 again. It's the joy that Jesus is giving to us. Not only by his example, but his life in us fueling that joy, giving us his joy. And we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What I want you to notice is cross shame, and joy in the same sentence. What we normally say is sex, money, happiness all has to be in the same sentence. Not trials, pain, joy. Loss of job, joy. That's the Christian equation. The joy that Jesus imparts to us is not the denial of sorrows or the drowning of sorrows. It's a deep delight that we have in him in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering. That God still loves us. He will reward us as we diligently seek him. That's godly joy. You know, it occurs to me that we have special days that we like to celebrate with particular people that, that, that mean a lot to us. We have birthdays, for instance, and we shower a person with gifts. We sing to them. We give them a special meal. We're going to do that in our family today. We do this on a birthday. 
uh, we have Christmas in which we, we gather around with friends and again, we share gifts, uh, we share stories, we have the family around and usually enjoy a wonderful meal together. There's Valentine's Day in which we, we show love and again, we, we give something special to that special someone. It would be inconsiderate to just skip these days and not celebrate with the people that we love. Let me suggest to you that with Christ, every day is Christmas, is Valentine's Day, is his birthday. In other words, we are giving to him gifts of our own life to express our love to him. Giving to him our lives in obedience as a sacrifice, as it were. Is that too much to ask for somebody who died for us and who, by the way, is our creator? I don't think that's too much to ask. To think of not loving him, to refuse to obey him, is not only inconsiderate, I would suggest it is extremely short-sighted. One who insists on following their own passions always having their own way, seeking to worship an idol of a God unfamiliar to the Bible, is not too unlike going to your spouse's birthday, not having any gift to give her, and insisting that everybody sing to you. Why? Because it's always about me, right? And that's exactly the position that we put ourselves in when we refuse to obey, we refuse to love, we refuse to worship, we refuse to abide. Every day is an opportunity to celebrate all we have in Jesus Christ and joyfully give to him. We recognize that there is a holy God who is deserving of our worship and obedience and loving him, obeying him, abiding in Christ. Gang, that is the greatest privilege for any human being. Do we really need to be whipped into that? I don't think so. If it comes to that, if it comes that you have to have legalism, you have to have somebody constantly whipping you into shape, you know what? We've already lost. God forbid, close these doors, lock them up, burn the place down if it gets to that here at Christ Community Church. Love shed abroad in our hearts. It can't help but overflow. Let's pray.